0: Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SupChina. Subscribe to SupChina's daily, newly designed China Access newsletter to keep on top of all the latest news from China from hundreds of different news sources. Or check out all the original writing on our website at supchina.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers and trackers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, joining me from fabled gold corn holler in the bushes and brambles of Middle Tennessee, just back from his holiday with South Korean President Yoon Suk-yul, where he proved much more fun company than Nancy Pelosi would have been. Uh, it's the one and only Jin yu otherwise known as... Jeremy Goldcorn. Jeremy, how are you, man? Greet the people, hey, won't you? Hey, guys.
1: <laughs> I think that should be, uh, what is it in Korean? Uh, Kim. Jin is Kim. It should be Kim Oog-Susu or something like that. <laughs> anyway, it's You guys good got to, be, to be, be
0: close buddies then, I, I suppose. Oh, yeah. What do you it like? Was, where would you holiday? <laughs> Just anything to dodge Pelosi. Huh? <laughs> A- anyway, today on Seneca, I am absolutely delighted to have as our guest the astronaut Leroy Zhao. Uh, Not only was Leroy the first Chinese-American in space, but he was also on three space shuttle flights and was mission commander of Expedition 10 to the International Space Station from October 2004 to April 2005. And I trust we are going to hear about those amazing experiences.
1: Leroy also happens to be one of the Americans who is most knowledgeable about the Chinese space program, and we'll be asking him quite a bit about that too. Leroy joins us from Colorado Springs. Leroy, welcome to Seneca.
0: Great, right, thank you very much. Fantastic to have you here. I I know we uh actually tried to do this back in 2017. Uh we we were it originally planned to interview you uh at a live show taped in front of an audience, but that venue fell through. Uh but I have to say looking back at the questions that I had written back then, uh, it was like like a strange time capsule. Um so very much has changed, not only in terms of, you know, the accomplishments in the space exploration field up from both the United States and and, and China, but also in, you know, American domestic politics and in uh, America's relations with the other other two major spacefaring nations, China and Russia. Uh, but Leroy, before we get into that, let's start with your own story. Uh, your your parents are originally from, from China, in fact, from Shandong province, uh, as I understand. It. And... Um, went to Taiwan like mine did before emigrating to the U.S. Uh, and you grew up bilingual. What was your connection to China?
2: Sure, yeah. My parents were both originally both from Sandong province. My father was from a small farming community on the western side of the province. And my mother was born in the beautiful port city of Qingdao, although wow. she moved, her family moved to Suzhou uh, not long after she was born, just a few years later. Uh, but yeah, they did, you know, make the journey to America through Taiwan, both arriving in Taiwan right around kind of the age of 12 or 13. Uh, they met at university there and my they got married. And my older sister was actually born on Taiwan. So by the time mm. I was born, they had immigrated to the United States. And we did grow up bilingual. My parents spoke Chinese at home and kind of kept elements of the Chinese culture. But of course, we lived in uh, mainstream American communities. And so especially once we started, you know, going to school then we were pretty much uh, mostly with, I mean, probably 99% uh, with, um, you know, regular white Americans. And so kind of grew up in, with, with a foot in both cultures and
0: both languages. So exactly like my life, except that you became an astronaut and I, I didn't. You became <laughs> a podcaster. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, well, Kaiser. Oh, well. Uh, so uh, Leroy, um, Can you tell us a bit about your path to becoming an astronaut? Uh, You you took the scientist route, I understand, rather than the Air Force route.
2: That's correct. And so it's something I had dreamed about since I was young. I was eight years old, almost nine years old, when Apollo 11 landed on the moon in 1969. I'd always been interested in airplanes and flying. and, And then when rockets came along with rockets, but it was that event, you know, the Apollo 11 landing, where I went out and looked out at the moon later and said, wow, you know, almost a quarter million miles away there, these guys are getting ready to take those first steps. And I said, you know, that's what I want to do. I want to be like those guys that are on the moon. And so I never forgot that dream. I was also always interested in technical things. So going into a course of engineering was was uh, completely natural for me to do. And uh, actually, when I was an undergraduate at-
0: At Berkeley, by the way, go Bears.
2: Yeah, yeah. Berkeley, go Bears. Uh, and I was thinking about, well, what do I want to do with my degrees? And I went back to my dream of trying to become an astronaut. And so, um, you know, I actually did go over to the Air Force and and joined Air Force ROTC. Uh, I was in there for a a number of weeks, I think about 13 weeks or so. But then I took a a medical exam and unbeknownst to me at the time, uh, the exam showed that my left eye was no longer perfect. So I wouldn't be a candidate to be an Air Force pilot therefore, um, I fortunately had not signed on the dotted line yet, you know, committing myself to that. So I was able to to get out of that. But uh, also around that time, you know, the shuttle program was starting to get going. And that opened up a lot of opportunities for civilian uh, engineers and scientists. And so um, I decided that I would try to go that route. I'm
0: just trying to figure and- out how it is that an ABC kid in America ended up with good vision at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're right. You're right. Yeah. So,
2: you know, by the time I uh, I started taking flying lessons in graduate school, you know, um, my left eye had gotten a little bit worse. And so I needed to actually get a pair of glasses to, you know, technically be okay to get in an airplane. And uh, mm. even though I didn't need them to drive, but anyway, it, it worked out. And, and fortunately, the standards for uh, mission specialist astronauts, like I was, are a little less stringent than those for uh, pilot astronauts, you know, the military test pilots, and so I was able to qualify for uh, for NASA. Fantastic. And so you ended up actually being on the 100th space shuttle flight in 2000 on the Discovery, isn't that right? That's correct. Yeah, my third shuttle mission, which was the first major assembly or second major assembly mission of the International Space Station program was turned out to be the the 100th shuttle mission. And how many shuttle missions did you fly in total? So in total, I flew three shuttle missions. Uh, My first mission was aboard Space Shuttle Columbia in 1994, and then Space Shuttle Endeavour in 1996, and finally Space Shuttle Discovery in uh, 2000.
0: How did the tragedies rock you personally? I mean, it must have just been really, I mean, could have been you.
2: Well, you know, the first uh, first accident, the Columbia, I mean, I'm sorry, the Challenger accident, Happened when I was in graduate school, and yeah, '86,
0: uh, right? Yeah, right
2: 86. in '86, and so I had um, I had just sent away to NASA asking for an application package to become an astronaut, and had received it, um, you know, probably just a week or so before the uh, the accident, and so it was um, you know pretty well pretty shocking to the entire nation, and but it didn't deter me at all. I went ahead and filled that application out and mailed it in probably a week after the accident happened. Wow. The, wow. um, you know, didn't, didn't uh, slow me down at all for wanting to to join NASA. Uh, unfortunately, uh, that, at that application, I hadn't quite finished my doctorate degrees and I didn't have that much uh, job experience. And, but I decided to go ahead and fill an application out anyway. But they did return it to me saying, well, you don't quite qualify yet. So, you know, finish your degree and get, get a little more uh, work experience and then reapply, which I did. And were your parents OK with all of this? They were, uh, you know, very, very Chinese, as you can imagine. <laughs> That's uh, why I'm both asking. Of are, both of them were engineers, and so uh, they were pleased that I was studying engineering. And they, um, you know, saw this astronaut thing as well. That's kind of cute that he wants to apply to be an astronaut. I don't, I don't think either of them expected I would ever be accepted. So it was fine for me to go ahead and do that. But uh, you know, as long as I was continuing with with engineering. Uh, even after I was accepted by NASA, uh, my dad would tell people, "Wow, well, this is just something he 's going to go off for a few years and i 'm sure he'll he 'll return to a real job <laughs> it 's a phase
0: he 's <laughs> still in that phase. Uh, tell us about your months on the international space station uh, how How long exactly were you up there for and I guess what was it like physically and and psychologically? I I remember Scott Kelly's book about his year in space. It had some pretty harrowing tales about the effects of, of that on the body and on the mind.
2: Right. So my fourth mission, you know, I'd flown those three space shuttle missions. And on the fourth mission, I flew on on a Russian rocket on Soyuz TMA-5. And we launched the International Space Station. And I served as a commander and NASA science officer for six and a half months during Expedition 10. So that wow. was quite a different experience. You know, shuttle missions are somewhere between one and two weeks in duration, depending on what you're doing. And then... um this was a whole different thing. Of course, you know, uh, we were up there for 193 days in total. So we had a long time to think about it. The training flow was about three and a half years, uh, very involved, spent half of that time roughly in Russia, in Star City outside of Moscow, because, you know, of course, um, we had to move back and forth, both the Russian cosmonauts and the Americans. We had to learn each other's languages. We had to learn about each other's um, you know, modules and and mission controls, worked with each other's mission control centers and all that. So we had to to learn each other's languages and pretty much to a fluent level because we had to learn all these things. Uh, we had to, I had to function as a co-pilot basically of the Russian spacecraft going up and down. And, uh, you know, and so there's a lot of travel, a lot of commitment, but it was a very rewarding experience. I really enjoyed I've always enjoyed international travel, but this was really kind of a, <laughs> a deeper immersion, you know, actually getting to live in another culture for extended periods of time. And then, you know, getting to fly that mission, very, very different from a, a two week shuttle mission. But uh, we had a long time to think about it and prepare ourselves for, um, you know, this, this journey that was going to uh, take us up there and leave us up there for over half a year. The... um I did take a couple of days to think about it when I first, the, the chief astronaut first approached me about uh, flying a station mission. It's not for everyone, you know, living half a year or more in, in a series of tin cans, basically. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, um, you know, I did decide to to accept that challenge of, of the training, the three and a half years of training and, and getting to go have that experience aboard the ISS. And I'm glad I did. The uh, physical effects you mentioned, they even on short shuttle missions, you get affected by going up and coming back. The long mm-hmm. flight, you basically have similar symptoms, but they're a little more intense, you know, because you've been up there for so long. Uh, but, uh, and it takes a little longer for them to go away. But basically, what you notice physically, the first time you go into space or anytime you go into space, is right at main engine cutoff when you're weightless, you get very dizzy. And that's because your balance system, you know, the little stones in your otoliths are jostling around, telling your brain that you're rotating in three axes. But your eyes tell you you're not right, so that disparity causes you to get very dizzy, Mm. and that can make you feel nauseous, of course, and and disoriented, and things like that. You feel very full-headed because there's no longer gravity pulling all the blood and and fluids down into your lower extremities, so they come up into your chest. And you know, people, if you look at astronauts, the first few days they're in space, they're really puffy. You know, their faces are really puff Mm. out from that extra pressure. It feels like you're standing on your head or laying on a heads down on an incline and in fact over the first couple of days of spaceflight, your body will basically eliminate around two liters of water you know so just imagine one of those big soda bottles that's how much less water on average your body is carrying while it's up in space wow so when you come back down you've got to kind of reverse all that your brain is forgotten over the course of the first day or two your brain forgets uh just ignores those signals coming from your inner ear and but when you come back you start picking up those senses again, and then your brain has already forgotten what to do. Even after a short shuttle mission, your brain's forgotten what to do with those signals. And so you feel dizzy again when you come back into gravity. You can feel nauseous. It's hard to, to get up and walk a straight line, you know. And But again, it kind of goes away after a couple of days, uh, more or less. Uh, after a long flight, it takes uh, more like, um, we took a week, which is very quick. It usually takes most crews two or three weeks or even four weeks for uh, you to start feeling normal again.
0: Wow. But,
2: It's, uh, yeah, so it it takes a toll on the body for sure. There are other things that happen to you in space. Of course, you're exposed to higher levels of radiation uh, because we don't have the protective effects of the atmosphere uh, in low Earth orbit. Uh, You know, we still have the Van Allen belts are above us, the radiation belts, but we don't have the benefit of our our air, basically, uh, you know, kind of attenuating the radiation from the sun and the galactic cosmic radiation that's, you know, everywhere in the universe. So that's, you know, kind of has implications possibly for long-term health. There's subtle changes to the immune system. You know, your red cell count goes down, your white cell count goes up. We don't really know exactly why. And you may have seen in the news in the last 15, almost 15-ish years, uh, we started noticing astronauts coming back. In fact, over 70% of astronauts coming back from these long missions with changes in their vision and sometimes, in some cases, permanent eye damage.
0: Wow.
2: We really have some ideas what it could be, but even after all these years, we don't have that, you know, smoking gun, if you will. And we don't know why it affects some people. It doesn't affect other people to date. I don't believe any women have been affected, but that may simply be that we haven't flown enough women uh, on these long flights for it to manifest itself. But, right. you know, that just kind of, this is just kind of a few examples of some of the medical challenges, the biomedical challenges of long duration spaceflight. And we really don't know what's going to happen uh, if and when we do send a crew to Mars.
0: Yeah, that's what I was thinking.
2: You know, because now you're flying beyond the protective uh, magnetic fields, the radiation belts. And so now you're going to be exposed to a lot more radiation. And, you know, but, you know, it's uh, this is this is expiration. It's not without risk. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's only for the brave. Um So this being a
1: show about China, let's move there now, Leroy. You you were the first American, as I understand it, to be allowed to enter the Taikonaut Center of China in 2006, and you've been back several times. Um, What exactly is the Taikonaut Center, and what can you tell us about it?
2: Right. So the uh, Astronaut Center of China is located. Astronaut Center is that
1: what we should call it? Not. Yeah, it's called the
2: ACC, Astronaut Center of China. Uh, It's located kind of on the outskirts of Beijing. And it's basically the functional equivalent of star city in Russia or the Johnson space center in Houston. Mm-hmm. You know, that's basically the the headquarters of astronauts and human space flight. And yeah, I was the first American to be allowed in, in 2006. And it was really, uh, fabulous to go in there and, and get to meet Yang Liwei, the first Chinese national astronaut. And, wow. and, uh, you know, the crew of the second mission as well. And we spent some time together and, and, uh, I got to talk, discuss a little bit about, uh, you know, what their missions were like and what my missions were like. Uh, And then subsequently, over the next several years, I went back a few more times, several more times, as a matter of fact. But that was back when China was extremely interested. I mean, they were just starting to fly their own astronauts into space. And they were extremely interested in working together on the International Space Station, joining the ISS program. There was a lot of, uh, not just in space exploration, but in all areas, there was a lot of a big push for international collaboration so it was a time of great hope you know and great uh anticipation which uh, unfortunately didn't stand the test of time you know we are where we are nowadays yeah politically yeah and including in the space program some years ago uh, my contacts in the in the space business over there they started um you know kind of not really responding that much or or even not responding at all to to any um emails or you know, things like that, that I would send over. And I think that's because of the policies changed, you know, when Xi Jinping took office over there, took over and, you know, very, became very uh, nationalistic about everything they're doing, especially space exploration. Uh, I think she sees that as, as a, well, as all countries do, is it kind of something to be proud of uh, showing their nation's uh, technical prowess and things like that. So unfortunately um, you know, I, don't know that I would be allowed back, yeah, <laughs> back over to yeah. the astronaut center of China these days. Uh, they're very much going it alone. You know, they've, they've got their space station well underway, almost completed with construction. It uh, looks like they'll probably get that done the next year or two. And, uh, so we're, we're kind of unfortunately separating and, you know, well not separating we, we're never working together. Uh, but I, but I, during those early years, I really was advocating for working with China using our model of working with the Russians as a way forward that we could also pursue with China.
0: Exactly. So you're somebody who has collaborated closely with both the Russians and Chinese. Um, Obviously, this year (laughs) has been really, really rough for for somebody with fond memories, presumably, of both. Um, These days, you know, cooperation with China, let alone Russia, is just like this distant memory, Right. Uh, but let's let's stick with that happier time for just a bit here uh, back, you know, before the Wolf Amendment, before the Cox report, before the whole kerfuffle over the Hughes and, and Laurel satellite launches. Um, what, what for you was the sort of the peak of collaboration between China and the United States, uh, the peak before everything kind of went sour?
2: Informally, you know, I began talking to the Chinese about possibly working together. You know, I'd gotten to know some people who were fairly senior in their human spaceflight program. And, uh, you know, the, the response back was positive. They, they were interested mm-hmm. in working together. There was great optimism. Uh, in 2008, 2009, I was on a, a White House appointed committee called the Review of U.S. Human Spaceflight Plans Committee. And uh, President Obama had just uh, been inaugurated and his, uh, his pick for NASA Administrator, Charlie Bolden. He and mm-hmm. Charlie were both big advocates of uh, international collaboration, especially trying to open things up with countries like China. And so that was a great time. There was great potential. We had a NASA Administrator and a President who was very much in favor of doing more with China. And so if it was gonna get done, uh, that would be the time. And my work on that committee, I put forward those ideas to the rest of the committee members and, but there was such a uh, such a, a wall of some very influential members of Congress. You mentioned uh, Congressman uh, Wolf,
0: Frank Wolf of Virginia, yeah.
2: and uh, you know there are a few others also that are still in that are still in the Congress and who are just as as anti working with Chinese on anything as you can you can be. They were able to get language inserted into the NASA into the appropriations bills and things like that that basically. Said NASA is not allowed to do anything with China mm. in spaceflight. And they're not allowed to spend any money uh, supporting any kind of bilateral um, you know, w- efforts. In other words, we could still work multilaterally if there were meetings involving several different countries of uh you know doing spaceflight, then yeah, you know, we can participate even if China's there. But it it was interpreted down to the point where NASA would not allow Chinese journalists to cover some of the last shuttle launches because technically that would have been spending money on, you know, to to get their their clearances and their badges to come in on site at NASA. Uh, that would have been technically spending government money on, you know, wow. Chinese representatives of their space uh, industry. So that's how bad things were, even though we had a president and a NASA administrator who were very much in favor of of trying to do more work with China in that area. You know, my thinking in, in every, a lot of people's thinking, uh, those days that back then was, look, you know, we were able to make this work with Russia. The partnership uh, at that point was working extremely well. And, it, you know, it arguably was making the relationship better overall uh, between our countries and other areas too. And so the argument said, well, you know, gosh, why don't we do this with China? Why don't we have an astronaut exchange, much like we did with the Russians in the beginning. We could fly an American aboard a Chinese spacecraft and we could fly a Chinese aboard one of the last shuttle missions uh, perhaps even going to ISS and, you know, getting to spend a short amount of time aboard ISS, you know. So uh, there was a time of great, um, you know, hope yeah. and and positivity. And I remember we had a conference in Houston uh, called the International Space Medicine Summit, which still goes on, by the way. And we had some senior officials from the Chinese Space Agency. And back then, before uh, the Wolf Amendments and all that, we were able to take them on site for for tours at the Johnson space center. And, you know, we went through uh, the mission control centers and I remember uh, bringing them to one room where uh, we were watching, it was one of the last Hubble space telescope servicing missions. So we were watching it wow. live, watching a spacewalk being conducted. And they were just watching this, you know, kind of amazed and cause they hadn't done spacewalks yet. And then we went to another control control room and there we were watching live, uh, operations aboard the International Space Station, and we were making yeah. it look easy. You know, which which NASA was pretty good at. Uh, one thing we really excelled at was was operations and space operations. And so the Chinese were just so impressed, and they were very eager to work with us. And and uh, but uh, none of that came to fruition.
0: Jeremy, can you imagine Congress scuttling U.S.-China relations? I, I've I've never heard of anything like that happening. <laughs> Leroy, can you talk a little bit about what led up to that? Because
1: if I'm not mistaken, the Wolf Amendment was signed. So that was Congress uh, banning NASA from cooperating with China. That was in 2011, which seems like prehistory. I mean, Xi Jinping wasn't even in power. What what caused the hostility to China in, in the area of space at that time?
2: There was a deep suspicion of, you know, trying to gather intelligence and secrets. And, and of course, those things go on. You know, of course, China was trying to spy on the U.S. And I don't know how successful they were, just like Russia was continuing to try to spy on the U.S., just like we try to spy on both of those countries. And everybody, everybody who can is trying to spy on each other. Right. So that's no secret. That's no uh, should come as no surprise. Uh, why particularly China? Well, uh, you know, I'm sure China was maybe being more aggressive about it, trying to catch up technically. But my point in, uh, with space cooperation, civil space cooperation is like, look, you know, we've been working with the Russians since the early, uh, mid nineties. And, you know, I'm sure they have been trying to get more understanding of, of things, uh, that we're doing. But to my knowledge, there's been no improper technical transfer in either direction. And so the controls in place are working, you know? And so why couldn't we use the same controls with China if we would decide to work together in civil space? And plus I said there's nothing classified that we're doing at NASA. NASA is a civil space agency. The only thing practical that uh, the Chinese might learn from working with us is is how to smoothly run a space station. We don't work on guidance systems. You know, the the companies that build the missiles, you know, Lockheed Martin, um, Boeing, they're the ones that work on guidance systems. They're the ones that work on advanced propulsion, mm. you know. And so there's really nothing that they could really steal from NASA working with us on ISS. But I think, you know, the Congress, the uh, the members of Congress who were so against doing anything with China, you know, saw China as the next big threat. And admittedly, of course, they are definitely um, a threat to the U.S., just like Russia is a threat. But China is probably a bigger threat because, frankly, they have more capability, you know. So um, their military is on the way up. And Russia's military, as we've seen their performance in the Ukraine, Hmm. very clearly on the way down. So, you know, I understand those concerns, but at the same time, my my position was, and still is, that, hey, we could still work together and put safeguards in place so we don't have improper tech transfer. Uh, but of course, these days, I don't think China's interested in doing it anyway.
0: Yeah, true, true, true. Jeremy, I don't know if you remember, but Frank Wolf from Virginia, he was actually the same congressman who... Uh, basically forced the State Department to cancel procurement of Lenovo computers. I think they were just ThinkPads, you know, just... It was like only a couple of years after, you know, Lenovo had acquired the IBM PC division. But yeah, anyway, that was Wolf. Um, meanwhile, Leroy, in, in the time since we were last planning on speaking, since 2017, um, China has made really significant advances in its space program and has gotten, you know, even more ambitious, if I'm not mistaken. What would you list... As the most important accomplishments of recent years in the Chinese space program, and, and what among the things that China has planned for the next decade or so do you think are the most exciting or the most scientifically significant?
2: Sure. Since those days, China really has made great strides. I mean, I talked a bit about their space station. And so they just added a new module onto that station just a a week or so ago. Mm -hmm, Uh, mm -hmm. They've got one more module they're going to add. And so really what they've created is kind of a small, medium-sized space station, much, much smaller than the ISS. But there's an argument to be made that that actually is a better operating size. Hmm. You know, in other words, you've got this complex. It's not so big. And so complicated that you've got to do all this maintenance work, which we have to do on ISS. But you've got a smaller lab uh, that doesn't take as much maintenance work. So arguably, maybe you can spend a greater percentage of your time up there doing scientific research, right? And so they've they've got that going. They've conducted several spacewalks to work on building the complex out. So they've got that capability. You know that, that seems to be working well for them. Uh, they've got the they've invited other countries. In fact, uh, pretty much. All of the partners on the International Space Station have been invited and, and you know, the Europeans and, and the, uh, some other partners have been talking to China about cooperating together. Uh, some of the European astronauts have gone over and done some training with the Chinese astronauts over the years, over the last several years. So uh, they are really working hard to take the baton, if you will, when we de- decommission ISS in uh, around 2030. They've also made great strides in other areas too. They put a rover uh, on the mm-hmm, on the far mm-hmm. side of the moon for the very first time, and they put a a relay satellite at what's called the second Lagrange point between the with the Earth and the Sun, which is beyond uh, beyond the uh, Moon and beyond the Earth and the Moon by by quite some distance. But anyway, they have a, a satellite there in what's called a halo orbit around this point where the gravitational forces balance out, so it doesn't take much fuel to stay there. And they relay signals from this rover, you know, on the far side, because there's no line of sight on the far side of the moon back to the Earth. And so it's being able to relay signals back uh, of its observations and photographs, videos. So they've shown a very high degree of sophistication in both their human spaceflight programs and their unmanned space programs, too. The um, exciting things to look forward to, of course, they're uh, they're going to have their, well, they've got their own Mars rover going on up there, too.
0: Yeah, Zhurong, yeah.
2: I don't think it's as sophisticated as as uh, as Curiosity and Perseverance, but, you know, still quite a good accomplishment. And their first rover, and it's uh, it's working. They are planning, of course, it's no secret, they're planning to send humans to the moon. They haven't nailed down a definite time yet, but they say in the 2030s, they plan to land their own astronauts on the moon. So. Uh, they are you know they're not they're in it for the long long haul the long game uh not surprisingly culturally that's that makes sense and you know i think we're going to see them continue to make the steady progress
0: you know i, I one of the, the projects that i'm curious about is shintian they had launched this uh space telescope where they had plans for a very large space telescope um it's supposed to be like 300 times larger in coverage than the hubble but of course like the rest of america i've been devouring uh, you know, the images from the Webb Space Telescope. Oh,
2: yes, right.
0: Is this still something that's planned? Uh, and and wh- is, it, is, is Shintian something comparable to Webb, or is Webb way way out ahead?
2: I, I don't know too much about the telescope. I don't know too much about their telescope. Uh, unfortunately, I haven't mm. read too much about it. I don't expect it would be as sophisticated as the Webb. The Webb is, uh, uh, Just you crazy, know, yeah. leaps and bounds ahead of Hubble and you know it's it's out there at lagrange point l2 as well it, it features uh, a cryo-cooled mirror when, and why it's important uh, why that's important is it's making infrared observations uh, almost to the edge of the big bang to the edge of the galaxy wow. uh, the, of the universe you know 13 and a half or so billion uh, light years away and you you know so you need to have a very cold mirror and you need not have these heat sources like the earth and the sun in the line of sight that would interfere with these observations so i would be surprised if the chinese telescope is as sophisticated as the web uh, web telescope but is performing to by all reports flawlessly uh, unfortunately it did take an impact uh among, you know some kind of a space debris impact impact that uh, damaged some of the the panels but but you know it was it was Not a surprise that it was going to take impacts over its lifetime, but it's still continuing to perform Mm -hmm. extremely well. So uh, most of the
1: time I lived in China for 20 years, Leroy, and most of that time was, you know, the big boom in building in cities. And uh, the, the sight of migrant workers with yellow hard hats has always sort of inspired in me this dream about seeing the kind of spacesuit equivalent uh, space-suited equivalent of the ye- yellow hard-hatted <laughs> migrant work on the moon, digging holes and building stuff. Um but anyway, I, my fantasy, how how long how far along is China towards what I believe is its ambition of uh creating a, a permanent moon base?
2: Uh you know, I think there's still a ways off of that. Now it's a huge leap from uh, getting humans to the moon and exploring like we did in Apollo and then establishing a permanent base. You know so it's, it's' a pretty big leap between the two I mean even the u s doesn't really have plans right now to set up a permanent base. We talk about setting up a a tended base, you know perhaps uh using the gateway as a is a as a jumping off point and uh you know a relay point if you will in orbit around the moon and then going down to the surface to perhaps a you know for better for lack of a better analogy like a summer home <laughs> you know, go down there and activate it and then do your operations and then and then come back
1: camping camping on the
2: moon <laughs> uh you know and of course talking about uh, a colony there it would need to be sustained from the earth you know you'd have to have a constant supply chain of uh, everything including oxygen i mean there you could tell a story of how you could look for ice down in, in you know subterranean ice Bring it up, have some big power source, maybe a nuclear reactor of some sort that uh, you could crack oxygen, use that to breathe and drink the ice water, you know, <laughs> things like that. But uh, but you know, I think you're going to be hard pressed uh, to be able to create any food down there. And so you're going to depend on the supply chain from Earth. Same with Mars, except it's a harder problem because it's farther away. You know, you could tell a story how you're going to... Um, you know, build a colony on Mars. It's one thing to explore it, but to build a colony. Of course, you know, Elon Musk, I, uh, I've done a little work for SpaceX over the years and got to meet him a couple of times, not, not recently, but over the years. And, uh, he has these, uh, what sound like pretty outlandish plans, but you know, if Tesla and, uh, SpaceX are, are any barometers, don't, don't count him out. He's, he's done a lot of things. The experts said, the experts all said, couldn't be done, you know? So, Uh, If anyone's going to build a colony, probably (laughs) he will. Speaking of SpaceX, can we talk a bit about
1: uh, private space companies in China, which are relatively new? And, you know, we know on the outside world a little bit about one space and uh, land space, Uh, but there are quite a few uh, private sector Chinese rocketry and space companies.
2: You know, unfortunately, I don't know too much about them. I mean, I've read about some of them and was frankly amazed that uh, China was going to allow these commercial space companies to you know, exist and and compete, if you will, with, with the government programs. But, um, you know, they haven't had much success. Uh, I, I remember one of the outfits tried to launch a, a payload into orbit um, a year or two ago, and it didn't work out too well. Uh, I'm not sure if any of them have had any successes in in launching satellites or anything else to orbit.
0: Hmm. What what do we know, Leroy, about public opinion in China towards its space program? I mean, my sense was always that there were debates that are probably familiar to, you know, to Americans, you know, same sorts of things like they would always raise terrestrial or even domestic concerns, you know, there are still homeless people here, millions of people living in poverty. Why are we going to spend all this money on space exploration? Others would very mm-hmm. invariably just, you know, counter that hey, Look, there's all sorts of spin off technologies, and that justifies it. And then, of course, there's just the, 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 the basic human drive to explore, right? Uh, do you have a read on the level of popular support in China? Sure.
2: Uh, you know, I think China, like the Russians, have been very, very proud of their space program. Yeah. You know, one, one thing for sure is that uh, state controlled media in both countries. Uh, always make a big deal out of uh, space missions and their their astronauts and, and their other achievements in space. And they're right to be proud of them, of course. But uh, the people, I think, the, of course, living in those kinds of systems is very different than living uh, in the Western system. And so uh, I think the people are going to be to a degree programmed more what they're supposed to be proud of and cheer for and uh, less concerned about protesting that, uh, hey, some of this money should be spent Somewhere else. Now, having said that, in the U.S., we spend the most on space exploration, both as a percentage of our our GDP and and as you know in in pure dollars. But still, it's a drop in the bucket. You know, NASA's yeah. budget for many many decades was less than one percent of the annual budget uh, of the United States, and only recently has it gotten a little bit bigger. Uh, not enough really to do these moon programs that we're supposed to be doing. You know, so that that's a whole nother topic, but. It uh, looks like we are on the verge of perhaps having the first launch of the, uh, the uh, space launch system rocket, the new rocket with an Orion spacecraft on top. But it's been a long time coming and it's cost a lot more than it was supposed to. Um, and we're still a long ways from sending humans back to the moon. So China is spending less money, but uh, they are able to get more done, uh, partly because of the uh, they have a flatter management structure, you know there's less bureaucracy in a way in a way there's less bureaucracy than in a in our in our system, and so you know they're able to kind of do more with less and the Russians too you know they've been able to do more with less less money as well, but you know again in, in space if we're going to compare China and Russia, China's clearly on the ascendancy whereas Russia clearly on the decline u s we're kind of you know i would I would grade us as uh Treading water a little bit, maybe gaining uh-huh. a little bit. But uh, uh, the excitement here in the U.S., I think, is SpaceX and, and hopefully Blue Origin, too. You know, Blue is, has been working hard, but they're so secretive. It's, it's not it's difficult to know exactly what they're up to or how close they are to certain launches. Uh, they have been operating their their New Shepard spacecraft. It's a suborbital mm-hmm. spacecraft. So, uh, you know, far cry from from sending satellites into orbit. Uh, but I think that's where the future excitement is really is is companies like spacex in the private sector yeah
1: how, how much of a factor do you think in in u s space activity is china as a as a rival and competitor is 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 some of the uh, the driver, especially from NASA, from the government, is it is it coming because it sees a need to uh, make sure the U.S. stays ahead of China?
2: When uh, China launched Yang you know, in two thousand and three, uh, there was great hope from a lot of parts of NASA that this was going to spark a new space race and we would see increased funding and emphasis on you know getting back to the moon and and hopefully to Mars, but uh, none of that. None of that unfolded. Uh, the uh, it was a very different situation, of course, with the Soviet Union back in the 60s and the 70s. So um, that never really happened. China, of course, they they want to just like any country, they want to show how their technical capabilities are so great. They're able to send astronauts uh, now aboard a space station. Uh, they've they've been able to send probes to the moon and Mars. They are preparing to send astronauts to. Uh, to the surface of the moon sometime, you know, sometime in the 2030s, according to plan. And so I think they remain very much focused on that to show the world that uh, of their technical prowess. Uh, NASA, you know, the US, we've frankly, we've kind of, we've gotten used to being in the lead. We've been in the lead for so long that I think, uh, uh, and, and of course, you know, the International Space Station is just a shining jewel of of international cooperation, and wouldn't be there without the United States as the lead partner. And for the as the lead partner, we paid for the uh, vast majority of the ISS, including the Russian modules. We paid for those to be mm-hmm. created. So, um, you know, we we have been able to uh, stay in the lead. But if we don't, if we're not, you know, careful, if we don't make plans, then in 2030, when the space station is deorbited. And depending on where the moon program is, uh, we may not have that much to, to do anymore. Uh,
1: you, you mentioned bureaucracy.
2: Uh, aside from
1: bureaucracy, what, are there other obstacles in the US that are keeping our own space program back?
2: The other piece, I mean, it's yeah, bureaucracy. I think it's just kind of natural that as organizations grow and as they get older, and uh, then there's more fat and more bureaucracy, more. Uh, perhaps some more um, siloing and infighting. So that's just how most organizations end up. And it's uh, really hard to kind of reverse that. But part of the other problem is, uh, you know, the, the, the way that we do business here, like NASA contracting with the big aerospace companies, that's how we've always done it. And during the, the space race, during the race to the moon, everybody was pulling forward, pushing forward in the same direction. Yeah, you know, it was a, almost like a wartime effort that we've got to beat the Soviets to the moon. Uh, but of course, what happened is the, these companies figured out that once we got to the moon and accomplished the mission, then their contracts were wind, wound down and they had to go look for new business. Mm. Right. And so it becomes a little bit of a conflict of interest. If you are too successful too quickly, you're just going to lose your contract. Uh, you know, So what can we do to kind of keep things going? There's you know, I don't think there's ever overt discussions like that, but that creeps into the culture and the mindset of, well, you know, we if we're too successful, we're going to work ourselves out of a job, you know. <laughs> um, and just one example of that I'll give is, you know, on this committee I was on in two thousand eight, two thousand nine, we suggested, hey, perhaps the the program's not working, the new program to go explore Moon and Mars or the asteroid in, in Mars. And um, so maybe what we ought to do is scale down the rocket such that we're using a lot of things that we're doing already on space shuttle and space shuttle is about to be retired. We could use the same solid rocket boosters, the advanced version that's being developed. We could use the same diameter external tank for the core stage. And so we can use the same tooling. We can use the space shuttle main engines instead of developing new ones. And we thought, well, you know, maybe we can cut some time and money off of, of all of this to to get there. But of course, that was 2008, 2009. And here we are in 2022, getting ready to launch that first rocket. And it's taken all this time and all this uh, uh, money, frankly, to get here. As an example, when NASA was created in 1958, uh, barely, not even quite 11 years later, 1969. I mean, back in 1958, we didn't have astronauts. We really didn't have any rockets to speak of. We had no idea how we would get to the moon or into orbit. Uh, I mean, you know, we, we hadn't really been very successful at it, but then in less than 11 years, we put humans mm. on the moon, right? And so contrast that with the current program that NASA has been running. The original, it, the one that morphed into the current one started back in 0405. The redesigned version was around 09, you know, and so here we are 09 to 22 and, you know, that's a lot more than 11 years. <laughs> so, and we're about to launch maybe this rocket for the first time here in the next month or so. Or maybe maybe on the 29th of this month. Yeah.
0: You know, the U.S. these days seems to do everything in terms of competition with China. I mean, you know, whether it's just technology production or or or, uh, you know, infrastructure renewal, it's always about competing with China. So, you know, why not a new space race? I mean, wouldn't that be kind of a good thing? Wouldn't that be you know, I mean, it really lit a fire to us, as you said last time. Um, I mean, amazing results. Mm -hmm. It's funny because I'm thinking like it's in the zeitgeist right now. I I don't know if you've seen this new show on Apple TV called For the Sake of Mankind. Have you seen this show?
2: Oh, I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. I just started
0: watching it. It's really interesting. So the premise is that the Russians get to the moon first. I mean, it all opens, you know, this big big funny tease where everyone thinks that you're about to watch Neil Armstrong touchdown. And then the cosmonaut who lands on the moon starts (laughs) speaking in Russian and talking about, you know, the, the great future of... Of communism, Marxism, Leninism, and and you know the the premise is that really sparks fire. I, I have a feeling that this is sort of subliminally about China, about Chinese competition. Um. Anyway, what 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 do you what do you think of of the idea of sparking a new space race with China? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Uh,
2: uh, well, un- unfortunately, I think the attitude on the U.S. side is well, sure, China doing all this stuff, but this all these are all things we have done years yeah, ago. True. We landed on the moon years ago. We we created a space station years ago, and their little puny space station is nothing compared to the ISS, you know. And while all that might be true, uh, they are steadily growing in their capabilities. And like I said, the, their smaller space station is probably more efficient to operate than the ISS. So it might be better to have one or or a fleet, perhaps, of smaller stations than uh, than a big huge ISS. In fact, NASA has been you know looking to to the commercial companies now and putting out requests for information and proposal to, okay, uh, what are your thoughts on building commercial space stations and, you know, contracts for building commercial space stations, which would be smaller, of course, than ISS. And so, you know, maybe we will move to that model if NASA is able to uh, get some of those efforts going before the end of ISS. But, you know, that's a big if, that's a big question mark, whether that's going to work out or whether the funding is going to be there uh, to continue. So, Unfortunately, I think on the side of the U.S. there's a lack of urgency. We still feel like the the, the political leaders and probably the public uh, is they're kind of in that mode of well, you know, China's yeah they're doing these things, but they're all stuff we've done before, and and um, you know we're, we're we'll always be in the lead. You know and that's not necessarily true.
0: <laughs> years years ago, I mean, I, I I would hope that the attitude would have changed a little bit because of China's recent successes, but Um, Here, let me read you a little passage from a Wired article that was published probably in like 2016 or 17. They said, like everything China does, people consistently underestimate the nation's space program. Common snubs include, and this is just like what you just said, it's miles behind the curve. The gear is all Russian knockoffs. Their launch schedules are hopelessly slapdash. Yeah, those have all been true at one point, but not an honest assessment of the program as it currently stands. Do you, do you agree with this writer? How do you rate the progress that they make? Do, and do we, are we underestimating it?
2: Oh, I agree. I completely agree, and I think we are underestimating it because, sure, in the beginning, they basically had their teams of Russian specialists coming through China. Even when I was training there, I would see these teams of uh, Chinese specialists come through Star City in Russia, and in fact, I'd go and try to talk to them, and <laughs> you know, and their handlers would would uh, shoo shoo them me away or corral them, and and not let them say much to me. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was interesting. So, yeah, a lot of their their initial technology was, was based on Russian technology that they either purchased, most of it purchased. Uh, but, um, uh, you know, their spacesuits, for example, uh, they, they, are, they are modified versions of the Russian spacesuit. But on the very first spacewalk that the Chinese conducted, uh, the first, the, the spacesuit that went out was mm. Chinese. But then the second astronaut stayed in the airlock wearing a Russian suit plugged into the same panel. In other words, the two systems yeah. were compatible, yeah. right? So they very much were using uh, Russian technology for sure. But they are advancing beyond that now. They are, their spacecraft initially was, was based on the Russian Soyuz design, a bigger version of it. But their rockets were not. Their rockets are different. They were... Um, Fueled by different propellants, they, they have gone off in different uh, directions now. They're, they're using cryogenic propellants, whereas the Russians are not really for their, for their core stages. And so the Chinese are, of course, building their own stuff now, and I would expect them to continue uh, doing so in the future. Hmm. What is the state of uh,
1: cooperation with, with Russia at the moment? Is there any meaningful cooperation between the two countries? Between
2: China countries? and Russia, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, so they're obviously very friendly right now. Uh, but uh, in terms of cooperation, certainly back in the early 2000s, in that time frame, there's a lot of collaboration, uh, a lot of work going on, Russians selling a lot of their technology and know-how to China to help them jumpstart their efforts. The uh, Currently... I don't think there's nearly as much there. In fact, I'm not aware of really any big cooperation, any programs together between Russia and China. And so when Russia was threatening to pull out of the ISS, uh, uh, one place people thought, well, some you know, lay people thought were, well, the Russians are just going to go work with China on their station. Uh, but frankly, I don't think that's going to happen because China at this point, um, they're certainly it's their stations, their program. They're certainly not going to accept Russia as an equal partner. And so Russia would have to be a junior partner, and I don't think the Russian uh, Russians would be willing to be put in that uh, position.
0: Yeah, so a few years ago we heard a lot about China's attempts to weaponize space, right, with satellite killers and that sort of thing. In fact,
2: mm-hmm. in, in, sure. in, in,
0: I think it was 2007, China did blow up on yes. its own, own satellites. Um, was there something to that allegation of weaponization, and, and what's the situation at present?
2: Sure, well, in 2007 China did contact conduct that Mm anti-satellite test, blowing up one of their old weather uh, satellites and scattering, frankly, a lot of debris in low Earth orbit. And, um, you know, that was roundly uh, uh, condemned around Mm -hmm. the world and as it should have been. But uh, China was demonstrating that they had that capability. And in fact, it was uh, I think it was a direct response to what the United States put out uh, about half a year prior uh, in our, you know, I forget the, the report, but it was basically saying that we the United States reserved the right to deny access to space to anyone that we feel is a threat, <laughs> you know, and clearly they had China in mind in, in writing those words. So China was basically showing that, well, we have that, uh, that capability as well. We can deny access to space to you too, if we want to. Yeah. So all countries, you know, United States, Russia, we have anti-satellite weapons. We have not done as, um, you know, kind of a, a visible uh, test as the China, as China did, But, you know, we have those capabilities and a lot of them are are classified. I don't know about them, but I'm sure we have them. Uh, The Russians have certainly shown capabilities to do things Mm -hmm. like that and disrupt our satellites and other countries' satellites if they want to. So China basically is saying, hey, you know, we we also have these weapons and we're going to show uh, very clearly that we have them and that they work. Um, So yes, they are definitely working very hard on military space, but uh, but to be fair so Russia and then the United States have also been working hard in those areas uh for many years longer
0: yeah it it feels sort of pointless at this point to to even say oh well i hope that uh things you know change and that that space cooperation can continue as it once did but i i i still sincerely do hope so i mean it just seems
1: kumbaya ha
0: kaiser yeah kumbaya absolutely <laughs>
2: Yeah, no, it'd be great. But, uh, you know, human nature is <laughs> being what it is. Uh, you know, we cooperate together when it, when it makes sense, but then, you know, there's been this inward turn of, of, uh, nationalism on, you know, both Russia and China and, and to a degree in the United States. But, uh, but I think more so in those countries and, um, you know, they are less co- interested in cooperating with us now than they were perhaps, you know, um, you know, 10-ish, 5, 10 years
0: yeah, ago. Yeah. What a pity. What an absolute pity.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Real shame.
0: Well, on that bummer note, though, I, I do want to thank you for taking so much time to talk to us about your, your fascinating life and uh, for sharing your perspectives <laughs> on the American and Chinese space programs. Uh, let's go on now uh, to recommendations. But first, a quick reminder that we're changing our name on September 1st to The China Project. But One thing that isn't changing is the fact that Seneca and the rest of the shows in our podcast network will still be powered by The China Project. And the best thing that you can do to support our podcasts is to subscribe to our China Access newsletter. Isn't that right, Jeremy?
1: That's right, Kaiser. And you don't only get access to our newsletter, you get access to all of our content behind our paywall, which, if you haven't been to our website lately, is a growing feast of everything from uh, very intensive daily business updates based on Chinese media and government sources, a growing range of cultural reporting, uh, feature stories, uh, and a lot more.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, So, yeah, let's move on to recommendations. Uh, Jeremy, why don't you kick us off, as is our old tradition?
1: Okay, I've got something quite grim but interesting. It's called Nuremberg Diary uh, by a guy named G.M. Gilbert, and he was the prison psychologist during the Nuremberg trials. Oh, wow. And it's this fascinating – it's told in a a, a, a quite a – not a lighthearted, but sort of anecdotal (laughs) way of his – experiences listening to these nazis senior nazis um talk about themselves um and it's it's really really fascinating um a, 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 uh, i was led to it by a, a quote that i thought was apocryphal uh, from goering about how easy it is to con the common people into making war it doesn't matter if you're an autocracy or democracy and uh that's one of the um uh, interesting parts of this book is uh, kind of an insight into Goering and these other senior Nazis' uh, way of thinking. Um, anyway, there we go. Not a light read, really, but uh, it's it's actually much easier to read than it might sound.
0: Yeah. Well, wow. uh, fascinating. Yeah, Goering is absolutely right. It, it does appear to be very easy to con the common people into war. I mean, we're seeing you know this happen. Sort of on both sides right now, Ugh, it's miserable. Anyway, Leroy, what do you have for us?
2: So I got to see a uh, a film recently that I hadn't heard of. It came out in 2021, mm-hmm. and it's uh, called Old Henry, mm-hmm. and it's what's called a micro western. I wasn't, I didn't know such a thing existed. I'm not usually a big western guy. I mean, I watch westerns, but uh, this friend said, "Hey, whoa, whoa, wait, you've got to see this movie." And so we put it on and I just absolutely loved it. And it's, uh, you know, without giving away the story, if you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's around the turn of the century of the last century of so it's around 1906 in Oklahoma, there's a farmer and he and his teenage son, you know, work the farm. Um, the, the mother, the wife, mother has passed away some 10 years earlier and they show a, 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 you know, picture of her grave on the, on the farm. And, um, you know, the, the, Farmer and his son um, they discover this this riderless horse comes up and they find this this man who's been shot he's barely alive and a whole bunch of money you know and so now they're in this kind of a, a strange situation. they bring the man back to the the farm and they start trying to nurse him back to to health and then you know there are a number of crises that happen as you can imagine as the story goes on that I won't give away. Uh, but it's very much a story about the relationship between the father and his son. And his son, being a teenager, is a, a bit rebellious. He finds life on the farm boring and and awful. And, you know, why are we still here? Why are you still here? And I'm going to get out of here as soon as I can. But then it's, you know, it's got these touching moments with uh, during these crises between the father and the son. And I guess it kind of resonated to me a little bit because I have I have teenagers. I have a daughter and a son, twins, uh, who are, you know, that age, 15 and a half or so. And so it, it kind of, you know, was very uh, interesting and touching movie in some ways.
0: I have a 16-year-old boy, so I'm sure I'm going to watch this as soon as I get home today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, check it out. It's uh, quite good. It's on one of the streaming services?
2: Uh, it is. Uh, it's at least, I think we saw it on Xfinity, but I'm sure it's on the other ones okay, as well. Fantastic. Some of the other ones.
0: Thank you. That's That sounds uh, like a really good sure. recommendation. I actually have two for this week. The first is the new biography of Putin, just called Putin by Philip Short, hmm. uh, which I'm only a, about a third of the way through right now, but it's it's certainly some very gripping reading. Um, Short was a longtime BBC cor- correspondent, and he actually earlier, I think it was in 2016, he published a biography of Mao as well, which I have not read, but uh, I, I, I have to say I've I've heard mixed things about that biography, but this Putin bio is great. It sets the tone pretty early on, uh, in well, r- r- right away. I mean, the intro just takes us into that whole story about Putin's succession to Yeltsin, uh, which I've heard many, many times and which I thought had been sort of closed. You know, it was uh, like settled, um, despite it being so like crazily conspiratorial and far fetched, this idea that, you know, Putin had staged these bombings in Russian cities, you know, killing Russian citizens. Um, and blaming it on Chechen rebels as part of this like you know false flag operation, but his um his take is that no uh, that that wasn't in fact what happened that it it uh, it it actually was uh, Chechen bombings and uh, it this is by no means an apology for Putin so far I mean it it paints him as a pretty unappealing character in many 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 ways but uh, it's it's great the research so far is. Super impressive, and and short writes extraordinarily well. So I, I highly recommend it so far, um, and I, I'll report back when I've finished it and tell you how I feel about it. Uh, my second recommendation for this week is an article. It's actually a pre-article, kind of a preview of a forthcoming paper about the Cyberspace Administration of China (CAC), written by Jamie Horsley, uh, who's a great scholar. Uh, it's uh, it's it, it looks at this strange hybrid undefined um, but undeniably powerful agency uh, in the Chinese Communist party uh it actually has sort of one foot in in the 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 administrative state and then another squarely you know in the party itself um it's really eye opening and it, it it it's it's really important for for anyone who who, under, who wants to understand governance in in sees China today to understand this uh. You know, Jeremy and I have both had dealings with the Cyberspace Administration of China, so we know how important they can be. Um, anyway, I, I reached out to Jamie. But they weren't, actually.
1: I, what I think is so interesting about the article, I mean, the cyberspace, you know, it wasn't as important as it is now. It's now oh, right. this extremely powerful
0: It's organization, become super it, powerful, yeah. It
1: wasn't. Right. Uh, its predecessors weren't. Anyway, yeah, fascinating yeah. article. I yeah, agree. so
0: I've actually reached out to Jamie, and uh, I just wrote to her just before we, we started recording just now, uh, let's see about getting around Seneca to discuss, so fingers crossed. Anyway, thank you so much, Leroy. What a fascinating conversation. Yeah, yeah pleasure. What, a, what yeah. a great time talking to you. And uh, we look forward to having you back on the show because there's just lots more to talk about. Uh, so I hope uh, you're amenable to that.
2: All right. Thank you, guys. It's been a pleasure.
0: Yeah. And Jeremy, as always, what a pleasure.
2: Thank you, Leroy. Thanks, Kaiser.
0: The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is a proud part of the Seneca Network. Our show is produced and edited by me, Kaiser Guo, We would be delighted if you would drop us an email at sineca at SupChina.com or just give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, as this really does help people discover the show. Meanwhile, follow us on Twitter or on Facebook at at News, and be sure to check out all the shows in the Seneca Network. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.